Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. Today, I have a very special panel-based episode. I have uh, assembled a team of um, high rollers in emergency management. I thought it would be very valuable to have a discussion about the role of women in emergency management. I also thought to myself, Steve, what makes you qualify to host a panel of women in emergency management? And my answer was, well, the podcast at this point has been moderately successful. People seem to say, you know, you could lead a panel. And I, I got to say this, and while the, the four of us have never worked together, I have worked with some of the most incredible uh, women in emergency management in a number of different roles that, uh, that I've had, either in New York City, uh, New York State, private sector, utilities, and uh, I'm really grateful to have... Uh, all you join me today. So I'm going to start with, we'll do some some brief introductions, and I'm just going to do Brady Bunch style. I got Andrea Davis in the upper left quadrant. Hi, Andrea. What? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Steve. Hi, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. So I'm Andrea Davis. I'm the president and CEO of the Resiliency Initiative, which is a small business that focuses on crisis planning for other businesses and communities um, around the globe. Um, before I kind of jumped into the great unknown of running my own little business, I was um, the head of emergency management for Walmart and the Walt Disney Company. And way before that, I was a public servant and I was the um, public information officer, head of external affairs for uh, FEMA's Katrina Recovery Office. And I was the emergency manager for the Federal Reserve. And I started in 1999 and my first crisis was Y2K. You know, it's interesting you call Y2K a crisis. That's a whole separate podcast on whether it actually was a crisis. But, uh, hey, I was in San Francisco. They were planning for the entire apocalypse. Uh, well, tech, tech central, right? Feet. Yep, and it got my feet wet and the importance of planning. And so yeah. that's what was my first job working for a nonprofit. Well, and you so know, we say I'm in the business, it... never, never let a good crisis go to waste. So you exactly. Good for Even you. Even if it Good is a you. fake one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mona, welcome to the show. You have an interesting background. Tell us about yourself. Well, I thank you, Steve. I started out in local uh, jurisdiction with the city of Los Angeles, and I worked there for 28 years, capping off that career 
um, working in the Operations Valley Bureau with the Los Angeles Police Department. Were you in the city or county? City. So you worked for Ellis? I did. I started out working for Ellis, yes. Okay. Um, Ellis is a, yeah. also a good friend. Yeah, yeah. He's a, a national tre- treasure. Um, and then after I retired, I did a little stint with FEMA, and I really enjoyed that. I moved to Hawaii. Um, I became a board member for HIEMA and also got involved with a local nonprofit working on a resiliency project um, for, you know, uh, uh, isolated community on the North Shore. Um, and, and that uh, project is really special to me. So I'm working really hard on that one. And of course, I split my time between Brisbane, LA and Hawaii. Um, and I'm excited to actually announce that I'm going to be speaking at the uh, National Conference Disaster Conference in Australia next year. That is very exciting. Very Thank exciting. You. Congratu- Thank you. Congratulations. Um, 20 years ago, maybe a little more than 20 years ago, actually it is more than 20 years ago, pre, just quick story, because we tell stories, pre uh, 9-11, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, I was part of a Department of Justice assessment team. And I mentioned this to you pre-show. And uh, the team was responsible for doing risk assessments throughout the four counties, four counties that comprise the state of Hawaii, correct? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So we, we were responsible for doing uh, risk assessment the four counties. I, I, I didn't make one for a personal conflict, but uh, uh, I did make three of the other counties, and you wouldn't be surprised to learn that a place that's in the middle of the Pacific with not a whole lot around, each of the islands without prodding came up with uh, their highest risk was an impact to something occurring at a seaport. And, uh, I mean, you, you get that, you know, uh, food, fuel, uh, uh, tourism, I mean, a, a lot of it. A lot of the economy depended on that. But I found it interesting that without any prodding with, uh, you know, pretty open-ended questions, each of the uh, islands, it's more than islands because some of the counties have multiple islands uh, all came up with that. So it's uh, Hawaii is a fascinating place, and I'm grateful for you joining the show. Jamie, hey there. Tell us about yourself. Hi there. Uh, yes, um, Jamie Corrales. I am currently with D.C.'s Home of the Land Security and Emergency Management Agency, uh, working in the planning section, mostly on uh, special projects, DARA, EMAP. Uh, but I've been with HCMA since 2005, um, which has been a very interesting experience. But prior to that, um, early in my career, I worked for the federal government, several agencies, and then went to work for the National League of Cities, which was a great opportunity. And then segued into government, uh, DC government from the mayor's office to public works to transportation and ending up um, in the DC's emergency management agency. So, you know, I've had opportunity to be a part of so many national security events, First Amendment, and all types of things. Uh, Once again, I think my connection with Steve is that I also served as a special assistant to the corporate secretary at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which that in and of itself was a great opportunity. And to see the towers fall was really, you know, bittersweet 
for me because I think of all the great people I met and what a great experience I had there. And to see all of that literally just collapse, you know, it was quite an emotional day for me. And uh, as far as Andrea goes, I just want to mention I had the opportunity to participate in Walmart's um, Leaders of Change program. So I had the opportunity to go to Bentonville and take a tour uh, and had a chance to visit the emergency management operations, you know, and uh, that was also a wonderful experience for me. And so um, I continue to do what I do. And, uh, you know, once again, I'm grateful for all the opportunities I've had, especially working in D.C. You know, we have the inauguration every year where we invite all our good friends to show up <laughs> as well as other things. So, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much my background. All right. So I, we uh, we passed around some questions. Now, we talk about this podcast being unscripted, but just to drive the conversation, we did develop a, a question set. We're not going to use it as a pure outline, but I thought we'd start with uh, with this question. I'm going to ask Andrea, uh, can you provide an overview of the role women have played historically in emergency management and how it has evolved over time? That, you know, I was really thinking about this question because I'm I'm someone who came to emergency management, just kind of fell into the career. I, I dropped out of law school and was looking for a job. And I was looking at classified ads in um, like old school newspaper in 99. And there was a whole bunch of this planning going on because of this little thing called Y2K, the world's ending, you know. And um, I thought this was just fascinating because I had no idea about this career, like emergency management, because I, my impression of anybody in the field of emergency management, right, it was more in that first responder or kind of like, or old days, like civil defense, right, a, a military kind of esque approach to things. And so when I saw this opportunity to focus on planning, and, and the job was really to work with nonprofits all around the county of San Francisco, and then link them back to the city, help them with their own continuity of operations, but then kind of share their resources um, back to the city. So in a time of crisis, that the city would know who they can pick up the phone and ask for maybe language translation, any you know special services that might be needed. I really thought this was fascinating outside of the random craziness with Y2K, this made good sense, like just to plan for a big natural disaster, what's San Francisco's biggest risk, right? It's it's an earthquake. And so thinking that through. And so I was like, really fascinated. And at, even at this time, and even in San Francisco, there, there weren't a lot of women in this space. And I think, I honestly believe it was because that the impression was it was this response. And if you look at the first responder community to this day, um, the, the minority of, of women are in, you know, are firefighters or in police service. I mean, it's obviously increased through the years, but if that was kind of the pool of people coming in to emergency management and with that mindset of the kind of response side, you, you didn't have a lot of women interested. And I honestly see, I'm like, I've seen it now, like going to the different conferences, there's more women in the room. I'm not the only woman. And I mean, you know, look at what Jamie and Mona, they've had a career in this, in this field. And so they were always out there. I just now think it's been more of the change in the field and that really the eye on planning, the eye on looking at, you know, mitigation and looking kind of forward um, as opposed to just an immediate response. 
And so I think it's kind of like a dual, um, you know, view of just how the profession has changed a little bit. And that's just been more attractive, I think, to women. And I, and I think that people like us, meaning the five of us, have, have made it that way. I think by the actions that you have taken and by the value that old guys like me have seen throughout the, my career in working with some extraordinary talent. Mona, what do you think about that? Going back, uh, you have some, some depth, was it 20 years with, with Los Angeles? Uh, what role have women played over the course of, those, uh, of your time in emergency management in, in, in helping to grow the industry? Um, well, I think that women, um, you know, when we're starting out in emergency management really didn't start out in leadership roles uh, where we have key women or women in key leadership roles today, for example, FEMA, Cal OES, we got our first um, female appointed as chair of the NAC, but it wasn't always that way. I mean, uh, you know, when you when you look at emergency management divisions or agencies, because they, you know, they weren't always standalone. The fields evolved a lot over time, but they were really kind of in a, a administrative or assisting roles, not leadership roles. But so now, you know, fast forward to today, we see women in those leadership roles, but we don't see them in great amounts in the rank and file. I mean, I think that's still something that is growing. Thankfully, it is growing. Um, but going back to how it all started for me, in 1994, I was not in the field of emergency management. I was working for the Department of Recreation and Parks. And that was the time of the Northridge earthquake. That was my first big disaster. And just kind of seeing how that that played out and how people, you know, sheltered in the park and they wouldn't go back into their homes, even when the, it was declared their homes were safe for re-entry. That was my first taste of what is this whole thing about? So just like Andrea, I fell into it. You know, because of, again, then we didn't have degrees. Right. So I have a political science degree. There were no EM degrees. Now, thankfully, there are many. Um, so, so that's another indication that that emergency management is really going mainstream. All the degrees that are out there. I, I could make an um, argument that a political science degree might be more valuable than an emergency management degree, especially in trying to navigate the, the, the political landscape that is emergency management. It is a big part of it, isn't it? It is. Uh, and then I, I know that when we first started getting those degrees, I, I don't know that they were really emergency managers teaching the content of those. Well, well that's another podcast uh, for it another is. time. But I feel like, uh, you know, there's a lot more opportunity now for women, yeah. um, especially since the degrees are out there. And I feel like when a young person graduates with that degree, they have a little bit of more of an equal footing when they're entering the field. So that's a plus for women right there. Really is. Really is. Jamie, what are some of the unique challenges that women experience in emergency management, whether they're on the front lines or, or in leadership positions? I really think um, 
overt bias and unconscious bias can be one of the main things that women face. Sometimes it can be racial. Uh, it could be military. As we know, a lot of former military folks see emergency management as their birthright. Once I get out the military, I'm supposed to get the job in emergency management. I'm supposed to be working here regardless of you know whether someone else who may have experience and not have that military affiliation does. Um, and also there are the other biases, there's the similarity to me, you know, depending on if you're going into a more traditional setup where a lot of the folks there may be older military law enforcement and don't want to see women there. And, um, you know, or just people looking at women differently. But I think that women can bring a different sense of sensibility and sensitivity to the job. Um, fortunately, being from Washington, D.C., I have great role models. Barbara Childs Pear, who worked her way through the entire agency to I, be the director. I know Barbara. I agree. And to her credit, because she had worked in so many different positions within the agency as director, there was nothing a, that she wouldn't ask you to do that she hadn't done, or if something needed to be done, she would roll up her sleeves and pitch in and get it done. Also, I had the opportunity to work under Millicent West, who's now out in um, Oregon, but she managed Serve DC before she came our, became our director, but she was instrumental in bringing our volunteer partners and really showing us the value in bringing in those non-traditional, how we could partner with different service organizations to help with the emergency management, um, with our with our emergency management activities. So those are two women who were able to, I was able to see, uh, integrate and be able to do things within within the agency. And initially, you know, in spite of, they were able to do very well. And, Andrea, along, along the lines, and sort of to to capitalize on on, on Jamie's uh, response, are there specific skills or qualities that women bring to emergency management that are particularly valuable to programs, or such as planning, or during, even more importantly, during crisis operations? Oh, I. I really feel like the number one strength that women bring to the table is they present with compassion and empathy um, when when dealing with a crisis situation. And, and I think that's a unique take um, sometime in looking at it with a different lens of when you have all absolute chaos going on in front of you, whether you're in the field or in, you're in an EOC environment, and you're having to quickly like figure out priorities and um, but to get elicit the support of the the team that is working with you and looking at it from a lens of true compassion and seeing like this is what my team needs to be successful and how I can support them as opposed to barking orders and try you know driving people working 15 hour days and you know that's the world I kind of came into as far as when you went into response mode and it was like a badge of honor right that you would work all these long hours and it was you felt you had to do that and 
I don't, I think women look at that differently than they see it in the sense of if someone works 15 hours, they are, their, their definition of work is, is not what we need. We need productive people who are here to be able to serve and get the job done. And I just think um, it's almost, it's always good to have the different perspectives and ask yourself who's missing around um, from the table, but having kind of that um, ability to assess quickly and do it in a compassionate way, I think is like the number one thing women can bring to the table. Uh, you know, you, you talk about compassion and one of the things I'm known for saying uh, publicly is that emergency management is a people first business. And we, you know, the first thing we do, even here in the private sector, any consulting operations that my team and I do is about people before anything, community before bridges. I mean, bridges certainly not to belittle the infrastructure part of it, but we'll fix the bridges, but you can't really, really re replace the people. You're, you're talking about a contemplative characteristic that I've experienced working with women where, where my male counterparts might be a little uh, quick to jump on a, on a decision. Uh, there's uh, that few extra seconds contemplating uh, a, a critical thinking is, is probably a better word has been very, very valuable. I find that to be uh, very valuable. I totally um, agree. And I think sometimes it's it's quick to judge that that is not as important. Um, that just kind of that step back, that assessment and to look at it from different lenses and that it's undervalued to me. Uh, it's a very undervalued attribute. And it, for me, it has made all the success in my career because I've my approach was distinctly different. And like you said, it's, it doesn't really matter if it's private sector, public sector, where, wherever you are, if you present with that and have that just that extra pause to think through from the human aspect, it really can make all the difference in the response. I read a book recently on risk and the author makes a point about saying that uh, lacking the diversity of thought and contemplation can actually increase risk. And that was critical during emergency situations. Uh, and diversity doesn't necessarily mean diversity the way we think of it today, although it is. It is about having people of different uh, ethnic backgrounds at the table because of their personal experiences and they bring that to the table. But it's, it's also diversity of disciplines, industries, professions, having, mm -hmm. having that diversity of thought. Not everybody should be on the same page during a crisis. In fact, conflict, yeah. uh, I believe uh, conflict is good. Controversy is not. Conflict, you know, meaning non-combative conflict should, yeah. you know, generate a good, good, you know, really good decisions. Good debate. Right. Because that's where you get to the best decision. And if you only have one mindset, one thought that's around the table, you're not going to get to the best decision. And I, I just, you know, I saw it when I was down and with Hurricane Katrina recovery work, you know, it's like, we're going to do this the way that we know how to do it from a FEMA approach. And it just, it was like, you're like going to just beat the rock until it bleeds. And it just wasn't working. And it, and it really took a whole like step back and say, Hey, here's a novel thought. Why don't we ask the community how they'd like to recover? You know, it's like, like not this rocket science, but it just like took, because there weren't the right voices around the table. There weren't diversity of thought. You, you just kept doing, you know, hitting that wall.
And then when you saw the recovery change, it was when there was engagement with the entire community. I think in the future, we're going to see a change in the way we do uh, the uh, individual assistance part of disaster I so. recovery. I, I think the IA component is going to be more social justice oriented, uh, socially oriented, socio-politically oriented, and we're going to be taking a look at socioeconomic factors more than just what the what the per capita of the state is and what the per capita of the county is to come up with that you know the that dollar value of whether you 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 qualify the stafford act separate podcast like mona said earlier completely separate needs an overhaul and and looking at uh, communities and looking at uh, you know the needs of the social situation would be highly valuable oh totally agree with you and i hope it happens because i mean we, we just saw what happened to maui i mean it, it we need to be looking at the socioeconomics of this nonprofits are starting this work and that the feds need to follow and support that so jamie uh, a, a point was made earlier that there's more you may have made the point that there are more women in leadership roles than there are in in in, in staff roles and and i think that might be true I was just thinking about what's going on out there. The commissioner of New York State Homeland Security is a woman. The director of Illinois State Emergency Management is a woman. And, and, and I go back to a time where out of the 50 states, there was one woman, Iowa, um, that she was the only woman in the game. Uh, and, and, now, and now there's many more. How can we encourage more women uh, to pursue careers in emergency management? What steps can you know, our colleagues in emergency management take to, to, to draw that interest, to, to make it, uh, uh, to make it, you know, sort of appetizing to, to join an emergency management job. Okay. Um, really, I think we have to, once again, kind of um, taking on what uh, what Andrea said, how women can bring a certain level of empathy and other types of skills and perspective that men may not bring. But also, I'm reminded I had the opportunity to participate in a, a day-long seminar and Craig Hugate, former director of FEMA, was speaking. And what he said and that really has always stuck with me when we talk about diversity and bringing other people into the field of emergency management. And he reflected on his experience in Florida. One of the things he said, you can't lead where you don't go and you can't teach what you don't know. So to the extent that we realize that women and people from all different backgrounds, when you can bring them into your organization, you know, as we respond to these emergencies, depending on the communities, if you have people who are on your team, who are familiar with those communities, they can contribute and provide that information, knowledge, expertise that will help you have some level of cultural competency, cultural understanding, cultural humility, so that when we go into these neighborhoods, we can be effective. So yeah, so I think that's uh, really just recognizing how you can build build the synergy and leverage the various experiences that come with bringing people from different backgrounds. 
I love the language you're using. I got to tell you, empathy, cultural competence. I mean, that really uh, talks about um, progressive, not in a political sense, but really advanced ways that our counterparts running emergency management agencies, our HR directors can start looking for folks because having that cultural competence, you know, I was an emergency manager in New York City. We had uh, 179 different language groups and uh, we had an office of uh, international affairs and a mayor's office that helped us when we needed to, you know, produce multiple multi-language stuff. We had a declared presidential disaster in Queens from a nor'easter, a flood disaster. And we had, uh, I think, 13 languages, seven were Asian. And that required a very special touch. It was Mandarin, Cantonese, and then Korean and Vietnamese. And then we had other things like Italian and Yiddish and Hebrew. And, you know, you have to be able to think that through and have that capability. But also, I would add, not just language, but even religious. Steve, you understand how different religious groups have different needs, you know, respecting holidays, customs, and those type of things. That adds as much to it as, as well as the language um, diversity as well. I think that's very important to consider. You know, Tom Fargione uh, was a uh, deputy director of New York State OEM and then became a FEMA a federal coordinating officer and IMAT team leader. He was on one of the episodes and he talks about cultural competency and he talks about the need for having kosher meals for both a Muslim and Jewish community in New York State for a, I believe it was a flood disaster. And um, they got the, uh, and, and you know, this, this takes skill. They got the uh, imam and a rabbi in the room, and they came to a decision that they would use kosher instead of halal because the kosher meals were a higher standard than uh, than halal. And uh, that's that's the kind of stuff you're talking about, having that capability to really think and do some critical thinking. So I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. Um. Okay, here comes, you know, the hard question, you know, and I think it's important that we talk about that, uh, about, uh, you know, gender biases, gender-related biases, stereotypes. Have you, I mean, share what you care to share. If you want to take a pass, I think that's okay. But have you encountered any gender-related biases or stereotypes in your own career or have seen that with other women that you uh, work with in emergency management? Start with Mona. Yes, of course I have. And it's been an interesting long journey, um, even going through it. But I think in general, women in emergency management do get do tend to get kind of pigeonholed into certain positions when they come into the field. Um, and I'm not saying that these positions are, you know, bad positions. They're not, but they're just one component of what makes an emergency manager. And I think they get kind of trapped and stuck in there. And, and that's, um, you know, community relations is a, it's a very big part of emergency management. Um, but a lot of women kind of get pushed into that one segment of it. Um, and I think Andrea touched on it, um, they don't really get the opportunity to be in the field and the operational part of it, which, so if you're, if you spend your career doing that one thing and you really don't experience the other components, I think that traps you in um, not being as promotable. 
as someone else in the field because emergency management is, you know, the bread and butter is responding to disasters and yeah, everything else kind of takes a pause. I mean, that is the core thing. And if that, if you don't really have that, those skills in that area, I think you're at a disadvantage. And I think that one way that, you know, women can um, kind of gain equal footing is to def definitely be moved around um, and, and given the opportunity to experience all of the parts, components of what emergency management really is. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, when you hire bad people, good people leave. And so there have been women that I have known Great really quote. good. Yeah. Yeah. Good emergency managers um, just kind of banging their head on this wall and they've left and they've, you know, flourished in other agencies. And, uh, you know, you go where you will be appreciated. And, um, I'm an advocate for that. I, th I think you make a good point. It, it, and I'm going back many years, probably decades, but my experience in the early days was women were in positions like uh, human services, mass care, kind of Red Crossy, Salvation Army kind of stuff, HR, yeah. HR, community service, yeah. uh, media relations, PIOs, uh, nothing wrong with any of those things. But I definitely, uh, in the in my later years, more recently, have experienced more women having a seat at the operations table, at the crisis management table. So I'm, gl I'm glad to hear you say that. Andrea, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, the the biases, the stereotypes. Um, are we baking any cakes around that? Well, yeah, full disclosure, um, I published an entire book on really? my experience. <laughs> of being in the field for nearly 25 years and and and, and tell it, us what it, the, and tell us about the book because i want people to go ahead and buy it i mean that's part uh, of this thank you yeah. And so I, I wrote a professional development self-help cookbook and it's short stories from my career, all true of like situations that occurred. And my therapy for dealing with the situation um, was baking a recipe. I made a recipe. And so it is, it's titled, I only remember grievances and desserts. What I have learned from the Cretans, douchebags and vipers so far. I had so much fun writing this <laughs> and, and, and the reason why, I wrote it is because I don't believe my experience is uncommon for women in male-dominated fields across the board. And I wanted to share, you know, like here, here's a little, here's case study, number one of here's a douchebag and what the situation was. And here's how I dealt with it. Sometimes well, sometimes not great. And, and so I wanted to share that of like, you know, if, if, you know, someone is literally physically blocking you from a federal coordinating officer and from you being able to do your job. And then like, you're, you're, you haven't slept in 20 hours and you have to brief secretary Napolitano in five minutes, yeah. probably breaking down and completely, you know, all out like snotty tears isn't the best approach <laughs> to do this. And so I wanted to share, right. Like on how like better ways and there's tips in there and there's, you know, um, different like goal sheets to like figure out like what's important to you on how you can counteract that because there's definitely been more positive than negative, but just calling out the behavior. Um, I, I think a lot of times 
um, people and I, I, I'm equal, um, both men and women I've experienced, you know, just, um, really bad behavior from sometimes I don't think that they realize, um, like just last week, Steve, I shared my story at a big conference of my career and a gentleman came up to me and said, boy, you have accomplished a lot for a woman, for a woman. Yes. And I know that man did not realize how sexist that comment was. Right. But I think as long as it's not like, you know, and so I just said, so what do you mean by that? You know, like, I think if you don't check somebody, they just kind of proceed and doing those types of things. If you don't like, you know, stand your ground and say, this is my job. I need to accomplish this. And just don't take comments. I was, Mona, going back to your operational thing, I was told I had no operational experience because I had never been shot at because I didn't have a military background. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, the qualifier. <laughs> you know, the, the, I mean, the, the equal to that in the public safety side are fire and law enforcement folks getting the jobs uh, in emergency management. And um, that's something else to think about. You, a number of you, I think two of you mentioned having that experience with military people. But if you look around the industry, you're still seeing uh, retired police chiefs, retired fire chiefs, sheriffs uh, get, getting the, getting those jobs too. One other point I want to make that we shouldn't pass over is that, Andrea, you mentioned that you have experienced biases from other women as well. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, I I remember reading that or, or maybe seeing when your Instagram reels on that, but that, that should not be um, uh, left un, unnoticed because it's not just man on woman. There are other women that perhaps have jealousies or just see you as a threat something to yeah, that effect. And that was the most like demoralizing, like when I think I about think. my career, right? Because you just think that like when, especially in a male dominated field, like attaching yourself to another woman is supposed to help you and they'll mentor you. And I just found the exact opposite. It was, you know, I was, they had to put up with a lot. And so I had to do the same. I had to learn from their experience and in, and I just, I don't know how bad it is or, and until I get in there. And, and so I just, I never wanted to be that person because I know how that felt. It was so isolating. And then, and if, you know, I, in some instances where I'm promoted kind of quicker than they were because of my personality, I'm just like, I don't accept certain things and the redhead can certainly come out. Then it would be just absolute, you know, at almost attacking I, I mean, I had in one instance, a long-term federal job. I had my woman colleague file a complaint against me because I made her uncomfortable with how I dressed. I mean, it was, and it was the most absurd thing. I was in a very conservative and bank environment. I wore a suit every day. <laughs> so I was just like, uh, uh, you know, but when you're having to fight on multiple fronts, you're never going to be successful. And so I, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, I wanted to give something back to, especially to women coming up in, in the field. So th to be a mentor, to be a resource, to help, because 
that's what we should be doing as humans in general. But um, at least I can make a difference, you know, in saying that as a woman, I want to be able to help other women, you know, coming in. And now with all the degrees in emergency management, you know, like there's renewed energy and totally different types of people getting into emergency management. And I, you know, it would have been awesome if I had known, you know, this amazing field and I was a theater major, so I, wow. I have, yeah. so which actually has helped me, I would have to say. I, I bet. <laughs> I, sort of like having that poli sci degree, be, knowing when to, you know, hold them, knowing when to fold them kind of thing is. Uh, exactly. Is when really, you just like put on the beauty queen smile and go, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> so Andrea, let's stick with you for a minute. What What is some of the strategies, best practices, perhaps that an organization can take to ensure that women do have equal opportunity and advancement, uh, you know, even if they came in at an entry level job and grow to the, you know, of course, I'm talking about you know, more robust emergency management operations, perhaps city or state or corporate, such as you have been in, which I think you're really well suited to answer this um, advancement. You're uh, section head, section supervisor, up to the director levels. What what can what guidance can the three of you give to um, to organizations? Starting with Andrea. Well, number one, um, ask yourself who's missing from the table. So not just from a female perspective, but um, just from, you know, different religions, different races, making sure that your your table is uh, represents um, the people that you serve and your community. It's number one to me. And then the the women or more junior folks that are coming in, make sure they have opportunities. Put them in positions where they can see, you know, what type of work they might want to go into, especially if you're coming out of college with a degree and emergency management is so diverse, you know, from being, doing the public affairs to mitigation, to planning, to ops, put them in those seats, do a rotation, don't get stuck, right? That this is my ops guy, this is, you know, logistics, move people around so you can start thinking differently and give those opportunities. That's, I, you know, I, I said I fell into this career, but I was also benefited from a lot of mentors that pushed me out of my comfort zone and put me in 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 charge of things, made me, you know, give me tasks that I, you know, that were important. It wasn't just like I'm getting coffee, you know, it's just give people tasks and let them, let them fail, let them fail because that's how they're going to learn. And you can help and you can help that and create this environment where everybody's then supporting each other because nobody feels threatened that, you know, you have like, this is my favorite person for X, Y, and Z. Just keep, it's got to be constant change. I would certainly suggest, uh, if I may be so bold, that the three of you can serve as mentors to young women trying to break into emergency management. And anybody listening to the podcast should uh, seek the three of you out, whether it be on LinkedIn or Facebook or well, whatever, I'll have your contact, your LinkedIn uh, accounts in the uh, please do please in do. the show yes. notes. I I was just fortunate to work with a young lady, an American who had been in Israel uh, for a while, uh, and uh, she um, was there during the October seventh attacks, and uh, and left, uh, got out and went to visit some family in. Uh, I want to say Bosnia. I may have gotten that wrong. And uh, I, uh, somebody put her in touch with me. And over the course of the last two months, 
I had been working with her on her resume. I didn't know her from a hole in the wall, but uh, we got to know each other real well. And she had a great resume and uh, a solid resume. She did Intel work in Israel for a private company on contract doing stuff. Uh, she had a degree from Tel Aviv University in like crisis management or something to that. I mean, solid. And uh, I, you know, shot her some some opportunities and she she get, shot me a note yesterday that she got a job uh and she's going to work as a contractor embedded in a, in amazon so i was really excited to hear that yeah she's going to work for a, one of the one of the larger global companies but embedded as an amazon uh, crisis manager and i'm really happy happy to see that so i'm sure she's listening to this and uh i would say uh reach out to these uh three uh, professionals and, uh, you know, seek their guidance where you need. Jamie, to you on um, strategies and best practice that organizations can do to ensure that there are opportunities for advancement, because I think you're in a, you're in a good position, well embedded in the organization to experience that. Yeah, I, um, first of all, I would say recognize and address bias. Um, commitment, it needs to start at the top and Ideally, it should be modeled by leadership by creating a culture of inclusiveness versus becoming performative. You know, you know, we'll write a bunch of documents saying how much we care about everybody and how we're committed to diversity and inclusion, but you are taking the pulse of the people within the agency who, if you really had a conversation, they may say no. <laughs> you know, so be be intentional with how you can um, bring people into your organization. And, um, but one of the other things I think becomes a challenge is that as time goes on, we are getting away from servant leaders and servant leadership. You know, so people are more self-serving involved and, you know, don't necessarily care. So I think to the extent that as we try to move forward, bring in the best and looking at how we can build and grow together as opposed to individuals looking out for themselves and their next job and how they can pad their resume in five months versus five years. You know, I think those, you know, recognizing how to do things better and different really would make makes a great difference. And it really has to start at the top because the leadership sets the tone, good, bad, or otherwise. You know, when you talk about servant leadership, I mean, I really, that really hits, uh, you know, hits the ball out of the park because none of us should be in emergency management without having that, that concept of, of being a servant leader before anything else. There's other leadership styles and, and models. Meta leadership is every emergency manager is a meta leader, you know, managing without direct authority, managing through influence, managing through that uh, that smile, you know, that Andreas got had learned from acting school, from drama school, and and, and the polit and the political stuff. But uh, yeah, being a servant leader before anything else is absolutely is absolutely what we what we should all be. I tell a story. In fact, you and I may have been talking about this yesterday. I worked with uh, a woman, happened to be a woman in one of my jobs. She was uh, way above me on the uh, in the org chart in this particular organization and during a, an emergency operations center activation i was running the command center uh, this individual was uh, emptying the garbages and i took her aside and said what are you doing 
She's imagining I'm emptying the garbage. I'm taking out the trash. I'm like, why are you doing that? She says, because it needs to get done. Servant leadership is the most simplest form. But she demonstrated how incredibly important it was for her as a senior leader in the organization to demonstrate that she could do the grunt work and 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 serve the uh, the greater emergency operations center team. So so it's a it's a it's a silly simple story that to me res I still talk about it today, right? This was probably ten years ago, maybe more, and uh, it's uh, it's it's just a story. Okay, looking to the future, coming up on uh, close to an hour. Uh, what trends or changes do you anticipate in the role of women in emergency management, and how can we, as senior leaders currently in the business, support their contribution to this? To this critical field. Let's go with uh, Mona. Well, that's a that's a good question, Steve. Um, I think that one way we can support it is again that that Jamie or Andrea, one of you two, mentioned being pushed out of your comfort zone, um, getting women to take that next step. Well, sometimes you have to do that. It happened to me. I can give you an example. James Featherstone. I don't know if you guys know James Featherstone. I, I remember great many conversations with him. Yeah, he's a great guy. A um, lot of knowledge. Many conversations with him about, you know, where I was headed um, and, you know, where I, I could be headed. And sometimes, you know, at the time it may have seemed to me to be, I don't know, not not a great thing. But when I look back on it, you know, he pushed me out of my comfort zone. And I have him, you know, in part to thank for, you know, helping me to get where I am today. But, um, you know, stuff like that. And then uh, there's another thing I did actually want to mention. We see these great organizations uh, popping up. I'm going to mention Women in Homeland Security, right? A great way for women to get mentorship with other women uh, to learn professional uh, trends. And um, I think that, you know, when we see that kind of stuff existing, I know we're on the right road. Um, that's not to say that there's a lot more work that, 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 you know, it does need to be done, but that's a great um, organization. There's one on the East Coast and there's one on the West Coast. Uh, the West Coast one, is the one that I was, of course, involved in. I remember when it was uh, first being talked about, maybe 2015, 16, 17. Um, and then, you know, now today, it's thriving. And yet here we are. I've never heard of it. And I am in touch with, you know, pretty much all the organizations in emergency management. There's the Institute for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Did I get the name right? In emergency management, Chauncey, right? I actually met her in uh, West Palm Beach at the Governor's Hurricane Conference and uh, so many organizations. And I, I'm, I'm not familiar with that one. So I learned something. One of my personal goals is to walk away from each of my podcast episodes learning something. And uh, uh, so, so th thank you for that. And we'll certainly encourage uh, women in our profession, Homeland Security and Emergency Management, uh, to seek that, uh, seek out that organization. Um, Jamie, what about the future? What's the future of women in emergency management? How can we give them 
uh, that foundation. And and I, I think at this point I'm talking about, it's come up a few times, the young ladies, like the one I spoke about from Israel, the, the young ladies that are coming out with degrees and, uh, you know, trying to get their, their, their boots dirty, because you got to have a degree and you got to have some some mud on your boots. You know, that's an old military expression, if I may, about, you know, having been in battle, but having seen some some crises, you know, some sort of an emergency, whatever the emergency is. But that doesn't mean you need to have been a firefighter or a paramedic, but you need to have um, you know been involved in some emergencies. What can we do to help women uh, enter the field and grow a little bit? Well, I think now that a lot of women... We lost are, your uh, image, your video. Yeah. There you yeah. go, got you. I okay. think there are a lot more women who feel more empowered. We are raising with women to say that you can do whatever you want to, and they are embracing their skill sets and their talents. And there are women who, in some cases, can out-men men, <laughs> you know, who are probably stronger or whatever. So it's not that... When we say women, we're all looking at one type of women, woman. There's women are so diverse in what they can bring in their skill sets. And I believe that literally for every man who fits in because he's a man for whatever, there's still a woman who can bring that same level of competency and skill to the position. It's just, you know, breaking down those silos, the tradition, the old boys network, the beliefs that, you know, only, you know, the biases. Once again, it comes down to the biases, recognizing the role that biases play, conscious and unconscious bias, and really um, making that effort to bring women in and ensuring that there is opportunity for, for women to continue to grow. And I think it'll take other women in the space to advocate to bring more women in. And I think that's where the um, parity will occur. Excellent. And, and uh, Andrea, just like uh, has been said, maybe you can close up with talking about how can we do that outreach? We're talking about associations like Women in Homeland Security, and we're, but at the local level or in the private sector, you and I run small consulting companies uh, or in the big corporate sector. I'm, you know, my organization is fortunately working for global organization right now. And I mean, it's, it's a ginormous organization. And how can this organization, either they happen to have a uh, well, we're not working for their crisis management team, we work for crisis communication. And there's women that has populated this this organization. I'm, I'm, I'm not really, don't really care who, care to share who it is at the moment, but that we are working with and for a team, a team of women, but uh, their crisis management is pretty much not. Their crisis management is, is mostly men. But so how can an organization like this or the organization that you used to work for, our small companies, how can we attract uh, women uh, to really, you know, fill the ranks. I think you and I, with our our firms, right, are uniquely positioned to make a difference in that. It is, you know, we're in charge of the hiring, and we can offer opportunities, and then, and because that's my dream is, you know, have hire the intern and then home grow them up, you know, and then prepare them for another opportunity. But I, uh, I make sure because going back to what you said, Steve, getting, getting your feet wet in operational response is important. You have to, whether it's through volunteer experience, but being responding to a disaster is a big deal. 
and presenting those opportunities for the team to be able to do that, giving time off to be part of an organization that might respond. But I think most importantly is just being open to mentor in your own backyard. You know, and I'm, I'm still in Bentonville, Arkansas. And so I, there's a huge team, you know, that I used to, to manage um, and I'm down the street from them. And so anybody, um, especially the young women that um, would like to have lunch, coffee or whatever with me, and I'm just an open door for them. And I think that's where you can make the difference to kind of like share your experience and then tell them where the opportunities are. And then if you're in a, in a position especially in a hiring role with a company, make sure that you're, you are presenting it um, opportunity for this really amazing person that you just hired. So they want to stay with you, right? At the end of the day, you want someone, um, it's hard to hire good people and keep them, but that's on you as, as that hiring manager to make sure they have these opportunities and that their function is diverse enough where you're able to, um, you know, so they grow with you. Excellent. Excellent. Let me do uh, some summary. looks like we lost Jamie there, but we're coming up to the, and we know that, that Jamie is in a bit of a uh, challenging uh, situation, but uh, just some high points that, that we spoke about uh, women mentoring other women. And I, I, I'll once again, once again, say to three of you, uh, I am, I'm fortunate. I'm very privileged that the three of you agreed like, Oh my God, Yes, I want to be on your show. I want to do this episode and I'm grateful and allow me to express my gratitude and thank you because just by being here, you're mentoring younger women that are going to be listening to the uh, to the podcast. Um, servant leaders, be a servant leader. Demonstrate that you could, well, I'll use the example. You could take the trash out. Don't matter if you're the four-star director or the, or the, the division head or whatever your whatever your your you know your position is take the trash out diversity of thought and that doesn't only mean uh gender or gender biases that, that diversity is diversity of industries professions but seek out um those women on your team mr director and get their input you may be surprised and very pleased with the value uh, proposition brought to you there. Leave your comfort zone. Oh my God, what a great observation. Because if you are in that standard HR, human resources, community services, PIO role, and you want to seat at the operations table, make it happen. Uh, you can do it. And I would strongly encourage women to, to seek out those operational roles. I would like nothing better than to walk into an EOC and to see the EOC director being a woman barking orders just like a man would and getting stuff done because at the end of the day, it's what we do. We get stuff done. And uh, that's it. Wow, there's so much we spoke about. Um, I'm sorry we lost Jamie there at the end, but it, it is the end. Any final thoughts go to uh, Andrea? Steve, thanks for this opportunity and any women out there um, who are just starting out. I was like you 25 years ago and I, I didn't um, know anything about this uh, field and I attribute all of my success for the strategic jumps that I took, um, jumping from nonprofit into federal space, then into the private sector, and then a big jump leaving Disney to go to Walmart and um, Bentonville, Arkansas. Take those jumps. 
may be out of that comfort zone and it will make you um, so successful because using that, that confidence that you have inside, you exude that and that's how you can really help and lead during a crisis. You gave a talk about this similar topic and you use the word courage and you need to have the courage to make that leap. And you certainly did. And you have achieved uh, uh, great success in, in your career. And uh, uh, it's because you had, you had the courage, the courage to do so. Mona, final thoughts. You know, I think that as women, uh, we have to make sure that we're ready to take those leaps. Um, in my case, when those doors opened, if I wasn't ready to go through them, I would have failed. So, you know, I, I, to be competent is the key. And a lot of times, uh, you know, you have to go the extra mile in really gaining that competency because you're a woman. But again, when those doors open, be ready to walk through. Um, and then, Steve, I want to thank you for allowing me to be on this podcast with um, these women who I think are just, wow, so awesome. And your content seems so beneficial to everyone. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. Thank you, folks. Thank you for joining the show. Um, uh, we'll have this probably uh, published just after the new year. I want to thank uh, Mona and Andrea and Jamie for joining Five Minutes to Chaos and for sharing your career experience and to talking about the value and the contribution of women in this thing of ours, this uh, emergency management profession. Five Minutes to Chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert when an episode drops. I welcome your comments or questions, which can be submitted in the comments area of the show or directed to me on LinkedIn. And until next time, embrace the chaos. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.